You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade. And my guest today is a blogger and internet person who goes by the name Doug J. Uh, Doug, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, it's great to be here. I'm Doug J. I used to write a balloon. I still write a balloon juice, but not as often as I used to. And I mostly am a Twitter uh, person now. Yeah, balloon juice is, I mean, that goes back to the early days of the blogosphere. So you're, you're, you've been in the trenches for a, for a yeah, long time. I joined balloon juice in fall of 2008, I think, right after Obama was, uh, won the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, a different time, a, a simpler time. Um, but so we're not going to be reminiscing about the uh, <laughs> glory days of the blogosphere today. We're going to be talking about a, pro- a project, a, um, yeah, I don't, would you call it a project? I don't know. You can call, call it a project. Yeah. In the sense that it's sort of a, sort of a persona, but it's also like a uh, group project. And then the sense that I, call it, I got a lot of the things that I write and stuff from, from the replies or people. DM me and, and so on. Right. And, it's, a, and it's, it's called NYT Pitchbot or yeah, New York Times Pitchbot. NYT Pitchbot. It was, I really liked that Jeff Jarvis parody guy. What the, he's changed his name a couple of times. Professor. Yeah, so no, I, I know what you're talking about. That wasn't, so that was, uh, yeah, is he, I, I haven't seen him as much as. No, he's, he's, he's kind of slowed down. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so Jeff Jarvis was sort of an evangelist of like, online media and stuff. And then someone um, made a parody account that was maybe called real Jeff Jarvis. I can't even remember, but um, it's it, gone through a couple of name changes. Yeah. I think it's been banned a couple of times, but um, it was, so someone making fun of this persona and always um, saying like, you know, something good was going to happen anytime there was some like development that seemed bad in terms of online media and news and, yeah, and so yeah, forth. Yeah. And always being like super, way too optimistic about what was going to, it and it happened. was always sort of mocking this obsession that that a certain kind of tech evangelist type people have about the next thing. How like every Twitter is two thousand seven. Now it's time the time for Peach or Medium or, or what, I can't even remember what half of them were. Yeah, that, that was the first. That was a, probably the first Twitter account that I really liked. You know, so like I didn't really, I wasn't really a Twitter person. Then I found that account and I, and I really thought it was hilarious. And, and it was for a long time, it was probably the only Twitter account that I read at all. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, okay. So how did, how did this start? And when, when, it, when did it actually start that you, um, I can't remember. I think that was about a year and a half ago. Okay. I was on Twitter. So kind of what happened was that, uh, I felt like I had less and less time, uh, during the day. To, to actually blog because you know blogging might it might take me 20 minutes to hammer out a post um and i have a i have a toddler that i'm watching a lot of the time and i don't really have breaks of that magnitude however i frequently do have breaks of a minute or two whether i want them or not i mean mm-hmm. some form of a timeout for not you know putting <laughs> the mag tiles up in the right order or something like that and so i wanted to have some kind of creative outlet you know, for those minute or two breaks that I had. Uh, and I, I enjoy the kind of give and take of, of Twitter. And I was sort of hunting around for trying to do something amusing. And then, as I said, the, my initial introduction to Twitter was really that Professor Jarvis parody um, persona. And then I started to really like uh, Reason Pitchbot and Federalist Pitchbot. 
And I started to read them all the time. And I thought, this is really funny. I want to do something kind of like that because I think there's not enough of that. You know, okay, so explain what, well, what are, for people who are not on Twitter, well, I think Federalist Pitchbot retired. Yeah. Um, and Reason Pitchbot did too, I think. Okay. They, they were more Trump era things, but I mean, it's sort of self-explanatory parodies of, you know, alt, ultra hard right, um, you know, headlines and lines from articles or for, you know, Federalist and, um, and Reason would be like libertarian, like a parody of libertarian. Yeah, output. yeah. So Reason was, Reason Pitchbot was, I would describe it as a very gentle parody of Reason. It was, it was very funny. It wasn't really that hard on Reason. It had, it sort of had this idea that the, that the ideal Reason reader is uh, someone living in his mom's basement playing video games and smoking pot all day, which is a pretty generous <laughs> interpretation of, of, of the whole thing based on what I believe actual reason readers are like. That's, uh, prob- that's probably a, at least a subsection of, of their audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the, it's, right. It's the, it's the basically benign subsection, you know, the, the ones that aren't into Peter Thiel and, you know, <laughs> ones that aren't anti-vaxxing or whatever. Okay, so you're working within a tradition that has been, that have been somewhat established among, you know, sort of not weird Twitter exactly, but parody Twitter, media Twitter. Yeah. And then, okay. So then you started New York Times pitch, but so I, I don't think we actually said this. If you want to follow this account, you have to, it, it is, it's still your original account. It's Doug J balloon. And the yeah. link, link to that will be below, but you uh, mostly inhabit this persona yeah. um, for the posts. And Okay, so how it so do you have like a one line description of what what the the theme of, of the account is parodying the New York Times, um, specifically the headlines, I would say, mm-hmm. because when I look through the New York Times, you know, I don't like that much in the opinion section. Um, it's gotten better maybe since James Bennett left, uh, and there's some really stupid articles too. Don't get me wrong, but a lot <laughs> of what I don't like is the is actually the headlines that they have this really formulaic way of. It, it's I think it's basically it's clickbait, but they accept it's clickbait before clickbait because they did it before the Internet existed. This thing where they can't just say uh, vaccine scientists say vaccines are good. It has to be scientists say vaccines are good. Are they right? You know, <laughs> or something like that. You know, uh, everything has to be. Cause otherwise, I, I understand the reason. Otherwise, people won't read it. They'll just say, like, well, I knew vaccines were good already. I'm not going to read that article. But if it's, you know, if they bring in, if you think like, hmm, is it really right? And then they have Brett Weinstein talk about how they're bad for a couple of paragraphs or something like that in there. Even if they shoot, even if they shoot it down completely, I think somehow they think that makes a more engaging experience for readers or it maybe just makes people click on it. As I said, though, I don't think it's a hundred percent just a clickbait thing because they did do it before the internet existed. And I think it might just be, an obsession with an obsession with being so neutral that you can't, you know, even a basic scientific fact can't be stated as fact because what about the 0.1% of the population that disagrees? Okay. So it's sort of both sides ism, which is something yeah. that people who are like the early, like liberal blogosphere was, was very critical of. Um, yeah. Both yeah. sides ism, but also kind of general head up its ass, uh, wealthy people living in in the New York city area, you know, that kind of thing too. Um, so what's, I mean, okay. So the, I mean, you, you parody the times, so you're not, you don't, uh, you're, you go further than the times because you're making fun of Chris Eliza, 
Glenn Greenwald. We'll, yeah. we'll talk a little bit of those sort of things. So it's, in some way, it's the Times is the, um, what's, what's the word? The, the like, uh, synecdoche, uh, for the, you know, larger, uh, media, like, center liberal media sphere. Yeah. And, um, and this group has certain pathologies. <laughs> um, yeah. and so one of them would be like, we need to hear both sides. And, you know, I, uh, I mean, this is, this, uh, in many ways, like blogging heads in its original form was sort of a uh, version of that, you know, hearing like two people, putting two people who didn't agree in conversation and letting them each have their say. Um, so I, you know, and, and it's, um, you know, as, as a general sort of thing, you know, it's better to hear from, <laughs> I think it's generally good to hear from both sides, but then, you know, when one side becomes totally insane, as many, th- you know, uh, there's a, there's some, percentage of the population who like believe that Donald Trump is actually still the secret president. And right. you don't, so you need to make some sort of value judgment as <laughs> a news editor of whether you well, take that seriously or not. I think it's even, I have an even bigger problem with the both sides thing, which is like almost more, I don't know, philosophical is the word, but uh, why like this whole thing of just trying to shoehorn every discussion into two battling sides I find it ridiculous. You know, there's lots of things that are not even political, right? Where there's five sides or, you know, everybody really agrees except a few crackpots. Yeah. I just think it's very simplistic to want to shoehorn everything into this, this uh, two sides thing. And I actually think that uh, although a lot of both sides is, is I think, and it, it begins maybe as an effort to seem neutral or be centrist or like uh or like, um, what's the word I'm looking for, but to make, to be less polarizing, I guess. But I think in a lot of ways, the net effect is to polarize because in fact, you're insisting on taking every issue and presenting it as two competing sides when that really does not fit every issue. There's lots of issues where basically people agree or no one really knows. And there's five different opinions or, you know, things like that. And so it's not just that I dislike it during the Trump era. I don't like I don't like it as just a, as this, I don't like it as such a heavy handed rhetorical device, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, the times, you know, sees itself and many other people see it as the paper of record. And yeah, it, it's stuck between trying to be voice from nowhere. That's another sort of critique. I think, um, Jay, was, Rosen. Jay Rosen came up with that yeah. term. The view uh, from um, nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. View from nowhere. Uh, a, a pose, yeah, pose of neutrality and above it all seeing everything and laying it all out there and you can decide sort of thing. But I guess maybe some, you know, the a postmodernist or something would say that that's impossible and everyone, everyone's like reality uh, is filtered through their position in society and the power structure and so forth. But um, they, but, you know, most of the people, I assume most of the people who are, writers and editors of the New York times are basically, you know, mainstream Democrats. And so when they have to do this both sides thing, it's not like, it's sort of like talking to the, um, you know, it's like, Oh, let's get, let's talk to the Martians and see what they think about this. So one of the ways you parody that is in this Ohio diner, which is one of your running jokes. I think it's very funny. So, do you, do you see that as the connection? And can you talk about the, this Ohio diner? Yeah. So I've always, so I, so I live in, in Rochester, New York, which I think is officially part of flyover country. Oh, I actually used to live in Rochester, New York. Oh, really? 
Yes, I lived. Well, I lived in Rochester and Aronacoit, but uh, we can oh, talk uh, about that later. <laughs> yeah, and I grew up in and I grew up in uh, upstate New York in a quite rural area. And uh, these articles where they go to diners in Ohio—they've always rubbed me the wrong way, because I think that they're extremely condescending to the people in these diners. I don't think they've spent a lot of time there, and I think it's like you said—it's like these are these idiot Martians who voted for Trump. And there's always an underlying assumption, right? It's never, they never go to an Ohio diner uh, and ask people what they think of Medicare for all and have them all say, yeah, we'd like it. You know, it's never, the people are never, ever, ever, ever taking a a liberal or progressive view on things. They're always loving Trump, despite the fact that Trump killed half their family or, you know what I mean? Or they'd like to vote support Biden, but the thing they care most about is Bull Simpson, so they can't quite pull the trigger. You know, it's always, always, always bad news for Democrats in some form or another. Yeah. And and also the people are always stupid, right? It's never like uh, (laughs) they never say, you know, they never say something like, oh, my my insurance forms are so damn complicated. Why can't we have single payer that would make it easy? You know, they're never saying anything very incisive. They're always saying stupid things. They're always saying things that are, you know, somewhere between uh, conservative and, and centrist. And I don't think it's accurate. And I also think that that whole form of reporting is bad. I think that if they want to talk to people in Ohio diners, Maybe find a reporter in Ohio that really knows these people and knows where they're coming from. I'm not saying that he would, he or she would, you know, have a more generous view of these people or something like that. But at least it would be a better informed one that sounded less. I mean, you know, that was that was more difficult to parody. Right, and so the there was sort of I, I feel like the the in this Ohio diner got so much pushback during the like early part of the Trump administration that. I think it became too embarrassing for um, journalists to do this anymore. But, and then maybe during COVID people weren't, you know, gathering in diners anyway, but so the, the, there's a very clear critique of this sort of thing, which is, you know, the reporter drops into some small town and wants to talk to people. So they go to the diner and like, who, who is eating at a diner in the middle of the day? It's usually like, uh, you know, retirees and uh, you know, people who aren't working, a lunch shift, obviously, I guess you could talk to the employees yeah. at the diner. And so if you go into some small town and talk to, um, you know, and, and go to the diner to try to get some local color for your story, you're probably talking to like a, you know, 67 year old, yeah, you know, retired uh, insurance salesman or something who who gets his lunch there every day, and so that's you're already like self selecting a certain right. But I also suspect that it's like jury selection, right? They they throw out they probably throw out anybody that seems too intelligent, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's, okay. That's... So, well, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, so there's a certain I mean, like a lazy form of journalism would be like, okay, I got to do a piece. You know, let's say it's the election is coming up. I got to go to some swing county in a swing yeah. state and find some quotes. And I basically know what the story is going to say. I just need to plug the quotes in. And then, you know, I can like sort of clock right. out early and and that'll, that'll be that. So there's certainly, you know, that's like the lazy way to do I it. Think um, that's, yeah. But I, I mean, my guess is there probably are people they meet in these diners who are actually interested in some issue, right. In some nerdy kind of way. And I don't think that they really, that doesn't really make for a good quote, right? You know, 
I mean, I think if, if there is some in the diner that, I don't know, keeps track of quarterly GDP or something like that and says something intelligent about that to them, that won't, that wouldn't really make a good quote, you know? Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> so scrolling, for, scrolling through your feed. I'm scrolling through your feed to look for some of these. So one example, July 4th, in this Ohio diner, no one pays taxes on the college tuition their employer provides for their <laughs> grandchildren. Um, so you, the uh, viewers and listeners can get the flavor. But um, I mean, also when you if, just think about this, like, you know, a lot of there's, this is a, a very large country with a lot of people in it. And a number of those people are sort of strange and have unusual beliefs. And so if you actually just went and talked to random people about politics, like the things they said would probably be more like weird and, you know, wouldn't fit into that's right a normal but, schema of left, right? Like, you probably yeah. have someone saying, like, you know, um, I don't like that Joe Biden because, um, you know, uh, um, it, it looks like, like his hair is fake or something. Right, yeah, like, you'd get a lot of things. You'd get a lot of things like that, yeah. yeah. Or, or, or that cross ideological lines in confusing ways that didn't, you know, fit into the left, right, red, blue yeah. thing of being, of being like, I, I'm trying to just make one up on the spot, but like, you know, people who, um, you know, love Joe Biden because they like, you know, think he was like a, a World War II war hero or something like just, yeah, they, you know, yeah. Most people but don't I mean, pay close attention to politics and have sort of confused beliefs because they ha- they're like busy with their actual lives and like getting, you know, picking their kids up for school. That yeah, yeah. I also don't like that. It's always very white, the places that they go. I mean, right. you know, and, and it, and it create, it goes hand in hand with this whole mythology around the white working class. Right. Whereas, you know, when you look at actual statistics, African-Americans and Latinos are more likely to identify as working class than, than white Americans. And yet, and yet this perpetuates this idea that the quote unquote real working class is white. Why don't they go to a, why don't they go to a, a, a black diner or a Latino diner or something like that? And of course the answer is that every now and then they do almost never, but then they only go to have them undermine Obama in some, uh, I mean, uh, Biden in some way, right? If they go to a black diner, they'll say, oh, no one here wants to get vaccinated. Or they'll say, or what they used to do is say, oh, no one here will ever come around on marriage equality, which turned out to be completely false. So every now and then they will go to some group that's not white, but then only to show that this supposedly liberal voting bloc really hates gay people or doesn't like vaccines or, or, or something or something silly like that. You uh, know? Uh, do, you, do you follow the work of, of Chris Arnotti? I do. I can't stand him. Okay, that's interesting. I've had him on the show before, um, and I do. It's poverty porn to me. Okay, it's well. That's that's a, definitely an understandable critique. I mean, he sort of does some version of this. He's not, you know, he he travels, or at least before the pandemic, he, he would travel the country, go to some place that is, yeah, sort of on the edges of. Um, you know, uh, a city and he said, so the first thing he said to you would always do is go to McDonald's. And yeah. so that's sort of a version of the diner, but um, maybe it has, he has said there's almost always some sort of um, elderly like coffee group at like every McDonald's he goes to where like yeah. the men would like gather at 6am to drink coffee and at McDonald's maybe uh, <laughs> another difference is the let usually lets you sit there unmolested. If you like buy one food item for as long as you want, clean bathrooms, clean Wi-Fi. Um, but I think he would, yeah, he would talk to, he talks to people and yeah, the, just the things they say just don't fit into the, like the, that's this is where I'm thinking more like people will just say something strange, like, 
you know, they like Joe Biden's hair or they don't like Joe Biden's hair. Like, just people have, you know, their their, their beliefs are are more unusual than. Um, yeah, yeah. His, I mean, his his are better, and that and that they're less predictable. I still don't like them though, because I still feel like he's always pushing this certain narrative. I feel like that. Well, no wonder people voted for Trump or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, that's what I and, I and I don't like that about it. And also, at the end of the day, and I'm not, I don't mean this as like a huge disparagement of his work, because you know it's interesting that he's doing it. I just don't know if I really think that that kind of thing is would ever be as interesting as if you actually had someone who lived in the community, prefer, you know, a journalist from the community, undertake something similar and talk about people instead. You know, it still has this. It still has this rich white person on safari aspect to it that I don't, that I just don't really like. Right. And, and so, yeah. So the person looks sort of like metaphorically parachuting in and spending 72 hours and then right. And then leaving and, and writing something and sharing it with the people. Yeah. And, yeah. And yeah. And someone place. who's not from the community, someone who's much wealthier and better educated than these, than any of the people that he's talking to, you know, there's, I don't know. There's just, it's just something about that whole, th- I mean, you know, probably whoever wrote this stuff, if it was a local journalist, that would also be someone who was more educated than a lot of the people that he or she was talking to. But I don't know, it would feel less like it would feel less like like a rich white person safari. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the, um, you know, in, in one respect, the, the Internet enables a local reporter or a local non reporter to, you know, find to like gather uh you know reporting quotes information from their area and share it with the larger world and that wouldn't have been possible 30 years ago because it just would have if it was published at all it just would have been like in the local paper but at the same time you know the internet has made us that local news is totally hollowed out and um you know the the local paper if it still exists is like a shell of its former self and so you would have to think like it would have to be someone who is maybe, I don't know, someone who got laid off from the local paper and decided to just, like, do an independent project or something. You know, well, I just think the New York Times could farm it out. I think they could talk to some local paper and say, hey, do you have a journalist who'd like to work with us on this piece and who actually knows the people, who knows the background, who knows, you know, who, yeah. who, knows, how to, who knows how to maybe uh, have an article about people that treats them with some dignity, you know? That's sort of my thing at the end. Is I don't think any of this stuff, I don't think it treats the subjects with the dignity that I would, that I would like to see. You know? mm-hmm. And, you know, coincidentally or not, dignity is the title of the book that Arnotti right. um, produced <laughs> right. uh, based on his, you know, interviewing and, and photographs. But I don't think that his work actually does give people that much dignity. Hmm. Okay. Um, that's interesting. So, and, you know, the, the times has become the de facto national paper because of these trends of the, you know, local, the local papers getting hollowed out and then the Times received this influx of subscribers and yeah. views during the Trump administration. And so you could, you can imagine the Times deciding that they want to do a project of, you know, seating local bureaus in various places drawn from people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So remember they, they sent um, the, the youngest Salzberger, they sent him to be like the Kansas City Bureau chief for a couple of years oh, or something yeah, as, yeah, yeah. as his like testing ground. And then he left and now he's the publisher or, or whatever. Um, you know, they could, instead of doing that, yeah. <laughs> um, the scion of the, of the company that, or the family that owns the paper, they could, 
you know, hire the young, you know, journalism graduate from the local, you know, state school or, or the people who had been laid off by the hollowed out, um, you know, hauling out of the, of the paper yeah. that had been I mean, bought you know, by, yeah. you know, I mean, capital or whatever. I, they could do some, something like that. And just something also that just didn't have to frame every issue into every issue. The, the pre, before it's written, the framing is already, this place is a depressing hellhole. And the people here are morons who vote for Trump, you know, right. <laughs> and, uh, or, you know, alternatively morons who used to be Democrats, but are so, uh, upset about Biden's failure to embrace Bull Simpson that, you know, or the, or, or they, or they care so much about the filibuster that they're willing to, you know, they're willing, they're willing to vote for a Republican is, is, and that's the, they're all kind of pre-framed like that. I feel like, you know? Right. And so, yeah, it's the, the Ohio diner thing is like, you know, the, these salt of the earth people, you know, they, they don't know, um, you know, they don't know much about like critical race theory, but they do know one thing. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. 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 And I, and I, I really don't, I really don't like that way of, of, of looking at people. And that's part of why I like to do the ones where the twist is that they say some, you know, they talk about Derrida or something like that. You know? <laughs> There's this, I'm a big fan of this show cheers and, Mm-hmm. One of my all-time favorite episodes, uh, Woody, the guy from Indiana, he wants to convince his parents that Boston is in such a bad place. And so he asks Diane, the artsy gra- uh, grad student waitress, to make a movie. And she makes this movie, and she does, she's she been watching a lot of French New Wave films, so it's all you know jump cuts and crazy stuff. And they send it to Woody's family, and, uh, she, and he, says to, he says to Diane, I'm sorry, the movie didn't didn't convince them. And she said, well, it was probably a little over their heads. And then he said, well, mostly they thought it was too derivative of Godard. <laughs> I always loved it because it was, such a, it was such a twist on wanting to look at these people as as silly and unsophisticated in some way. And then the, and the joke is that they're not. So I, I like so I, I like to do a lot of jokes like that. Uh-huh. And they're not made to make fun of people. They're made to make fun of the stereotype that people who go to diners couldn't have sophisticated opinions about things. Right. Um, okay. So you, so you, in your, uh, you know, the realm of parody for this account is both the sort of, you know, that sort of new stuff, but also the opinion stuff. And, you know, plenty of people have plenty of critiques of the New York times opinion section, um, especially over the past couple of years. Um, I, I've done whole episodes on this topic. So um, they, I mean, in summer, so we once again have to think that most of the people who work behind the scenes at the editorial page in the New York Times are like center left, yeah, liberal progressive types. Um, and but there's a you know, there's a there's a in clickbait terms, just uh, driving the conversation or whatever, there's like. Uh, you know, the counterintuitive take, like the old slate pitch that slate doesn't actually yeah. do anymore. Um, and so that, and that's how, I guess, sort of how you get, you know, um, the New York times publishing Tom Cotton saying, um, you know, send in, send in the troops to um, break up um, the black lives matter, you know, protests slash riots, whatever you want to call them. Um, and, Yes, yeah, so, I mean, there's plenty of. You know, how do you? What do you think of the 
Times opinion page and how do you see it, especially after Bennett got forced out after, uh, about a year ago? So I will tell you that over the past few years, my my view of the New York Times opinion page has totally changed in the sense that there are columnists who I really, really just made me crazy before, like David Brooks, who now when I read him, he's mostly saying that Biden should go big and fight the filibuster and, and all the things that I agree with. And his reasons for his arguments are pretty good about it, too. And that was always my view of the New York Times opinion page, these sort of tepid centrists who ultimately come around backhandedly to supporting Republicans. And I think a lot of it was that way. But I think that when they hired Barry Weiss and the other guy, Brett Stevens, Brett Stevens, it just really kind of went off the deep end in a totally different way. Like the problem was no longer, you know, stupid, tepid centrism, though I do make fun of that. The problem was like truly insane things. I mean, I think Brett Stevens is mostly just very stupid and, and contrarian. I actually occasionally read those conversations with Gail Collins, and, and I find much to my horror that when it actually comes to who he'll vote for and what he thinks would be a good, you know, strategy for Democrats and message wise and stuff. I actually find that I usually agree with him. Uh, he's just very stupid and he can't stop the contrarian stuff. But one thing that I think people really haven't fully absorbed was how awful it was for them to hire Barry Weiss. Uh, if you look at that article she wrote about the uh, promoting the intellectual dark web, mm-hmm. I mean, the people on there are insane, right? Brett Weinstein is an anti-vaxxer. Joe Rogan believes the moon landing was fake. I mean, it's it's lunacy. It's complete lunacy. And I think to take that world of, of lunacy, much of it very dangerous. Now, at the time, it was maybe less clear it was dangerous, right, because we didn't have COVID yet. And to try to take all that stuff, which, you know, and mainstream it into the New York Times was really terrible. And, and, uh, and, and, and she's a complete fraud as well. I mean, I, I think that that for me, was when I just felt like this 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 thing is completely broken. Mm-hmm. You know, they, and they deserve as much mockery as, as we can muster. Yeah, I, I I made this point a couple of years ago in an episode where I talked to David Cleon about um, the New York Times uh, opinion section. This would have been like 2018 or so. Um, but you know, the, just the the fact that um, you know Trump won, shocking you know many many of the right thinking um, people in America. And then they decided to remedy this on the op-ed page by hiring uh, an anti-Trump Republican neocon former Wall Street Journal writer, Brett Stevens, and bring Barry Weiss in to be an editor. It was just like they had they had they had two House conservatives, Brooks and Douthat, who I actually I I like both of them. And I Douthat is the only regular I guess Douthat and Michelle um, Goldberg are the only ones where I'll pretty much read automatically no matter what the topic is these days um i think i think a lot of people hate doubt there for various reasons i i uh, like him i like him too i think that he's okay i think he's thought i don't really make fun i make fun of him occasionally because sometimes he you know he has that he is a conservative catholic and they do things that are very funny there's just something crazy about i'm I'm, i was He, he has a like i think what sets him apart is well he's very smart and he um but he definitely has some oddball beliefs. Yeah, yeah. But he actually like does believe them. Whereas, yeah, yeah. Often, I don't know, like, it, like it comes from a like a genuine place, and so you sort of under you get to see how he's thinking and so forth. And he is intellectually honest. But anyway, so they had two anti-Trump 
conservatives and instead of you know, I, as I said at the time, this is a country of 300 million people. Surely they could could have found one pro-Trump columnist um, who could write, you know, a once or twice a week column for them. But instead they brought in another anti-Trump conservative, which is like one or two percent of the population at that point uh, representing them. So that just was a total misfire. And did, did they yeah, need more Connery? And... I don't think they needed a pro-Trump conservative. I think that you know, this... That maybe I, th- I think that would have been a smart move for them. I don't, I, like, who would that person have been is somewhat more difficult to think of, but, ha- you know, half, roughly half the voting population chose Trump, so it would make sense to try to understand why that was uh, from s- someone who... Sure, but I think you could, have somebody, you could have somebody write about that who wasn't a pro-Trump conservative. You know what I mean? You could just... I think the idea is you could have someone maybe who lived in a part of the country where people were more pro-Trump or something like that write about it, write about the, write about what he was seeing and so on uh-huh. without the person actually being, uh, without the person actually being pro-Trump, you know? Right. And it's, you know, the fact that there's no, I mean, someone like Daniel McCarthy is maybe, there's only a couple of names you could think of, you know, try to find someone who is an intellectually honest Trump supporter is a difficult I don't proposition. think there are any, right? The, the Washington Post hired this guy, Greg Abernathy, and they hired Hugh Hewitt. And they're both terrible, you know. Uh, Abernathy's maybe not quite as bad. He lives in Iowa, and so at least there's some geographical diversity there. But uh, in general, they're terrible. I think they add nothing. Uh, so I yeah, don't. Hugh, think I mean, Hewitt is full of shit. I, I actually Abernathy. The name doesn't even. I don't even know who that is. Um, it's funny how it, I've joked about this before on, tw- on Twitter. How you know the New York Times op-ed is like the only <laughs> op-ed and opinion section that matters in the country. And at one point, I pulled out the uh, wall street journal like the screenshot of the wall street journal opinion page listing all their columnists and i said what how many of these names do you even recognize of who this person is and i think i recognize like five of 15 and i'm i, I was like <laughs> you know being paid to follow the news at, at that point like no one you know if you can name like like just no one cares it's just strange no one cares about the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal yeah. opinion sections, and, and but well, the Wall Street Journal one is really bad. I yes. mean, it's 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 almost hard to really convey how bad it is. It's it's just it's it's very 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 poor, and I don't just mean because I don't agree with them. The quality is is incredibly bad. They're very very stupid people, you know. Um, it, it's it's shock. I mean, it's, you you would think they could assemble a more impressive. Lineup. Well, actually, I have it right here. Um, well, I think most people who read newspapers are stupid too, and so I think it's a lot of <laughs> op-eds to me. They're written by stupid people for stupid people. That probably makes sense. Okay, yeah, I, I found this. I don't. We don't need to read them all, but like, um, you know, uh, Holman W. Jenkins, uh, William McGurn, Mary Anastasia O'Grady, Jason Riley. Like, I I don't know who these people are. I've never read yeah, a single I think thing. I've heard of Jason Riley. He's the first one that you named that I've heard of, right? Peggy James, Newman, James Freeman, like uh, Joseph Sternberg. Like, these are not, whereas, you know, everyone. you got Peggy Noonan, right? Yes. And the, then so the ones who are Noonan and Walter Russell Mead. Other than that. Yeah, there's like maybe four of them that any that anybody's that anybody's heard of. Yes, and in my joke, I said your Wall Street Journal opinion columnist number is the number of Wall Street <laughs> Journal opinion columnists whose names you even vaguely recognize, and I said mine was four. Um, and... William Galston and uh, Kimberly Strassel and the other ones. But yeah, it's just funny because, you know, uh, if we, if we think that like, you know, Gail Collins and Brett Stevens are sort of like the B team, uh, the New York Times opinion page, but we all, everyone, we all like quote unquote know who yeah. those people are. 
and no one is arguing about Holman W. Jenkins's latest, no, you know, yeah. latest column. I wouldn't have even guessed that that was a opinion columnist. I would have thought that was maybe a Civil War general. <laughs> or, right. Know, yeah. Maybe, maybe a relief pitcher, you know, something like yeah, that. Yeah, it, it does. It It's slightly um, reminiscent of uh, T. Herman's Zweibel, the uh, fake publisher of, of The Onion from, from back in the day. Um, but yeah, it is. So, you know, the, the media class is totally obsessed with the New York Times opinion page in a way that's probably not healthy. And well, yeah. you can comment that being someone who, you know, mocks it for a line for your hobby. But, um, but anyway, the, um, I do think they, they did, they have done some good things. I mean, I, Michelle, they hired, actually, it's surprising. They hired a number of people who sort of yeah. were early blogging heads type people. I mean, yeah, so they I, have, I love Jamal Bowie. I was, they I have Bowie. They have Ezra Klein. They have Michelle Goldberg. Doubt it. Um, uh, Liz Brunig came and went, um, but they they seem to make some good decisions. I mean, Landing Ezra Klein, you know, he certainly like was a coup, um, and having him like brings very popular podcast there. And but yeah, they I mean, just getting people who getting someone who lives not in Washington or New York, like that would be that'd be good. I mean, they used to have this guy. I don't think he does it anymore. They used to have this guy who would write sort of like um, letters from the farm. Do you remember that guy? Yeah, I think I kind of do, right. Of course, the fact framing it as letters from the farm is, is problematic. <laughs> right. And, and it was always about like him like looking at like a chickadee or something. And right, right. It's like still his, this idea. Ver, Verlin Klinkenborg, that, 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 that's the person's name. He yeah, does, there's so he still a notion to me that if you're not living in the cellar corridor, you're kind of an eccentric who's mostly interested in looking at chickadees or something. <laughs> right. And I don't right. think that's, I don't think that's very healthy either, you know? Yeah. But so they could, I mean, they could. Real serious lives outside of the cellar corridor too, you know? Yeah, so they, what they could do, I mean, so I think it's good that they hired Bowie. Actually, I mean, he lives in Charlottesville, I think, so that's, you know, somewhat outside of the, um, yeah, yeah, it's no, not in the corridor. But, you know, they could look for a writer for, like, you know, um, the, the Rochester Democratic Chronicle, for example. Right. Just, like, they like take someone from sort of the, like, minor leagues um, yeah. and elevate them instead of, I mean, I, I, I like Michelle Goldberg a lot, but, you know, she lives in Brooklyn, and you know, like your referred slate in the nation. So they could, they could find people who are just outside of the media, like within or are writers, but are outside of the media elite. Yeah. And, yeah. And or or, or ge- at least geographically outside of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, I think there's a lot of, I mean, I think it's, I think to be honest with you, it kind of goes to a larger issue with the New York times. It's very parochial, right. And everything, it treats everything outside of New York city and maybe DC, but really even just outside of New York city is, some kind of a weird place, right? Like, you know how they every now and then, so I, one of my all-time favorite bloggers and Twitter personalities is uh, Atrios. I love Atrios. Uh, Atrios does, whenever the New York Times goes to Philadelphia, they write about it like they're on safari, you know? Yes, and they, there's a classic thing where, like, every 18 months they discover, like, things yeah. are happening in Los Angeles. And, right. and they'll do a story of, like, yeah. I'm yeah, sure but, it's, but, it's but, but LA, they treat LA with a certain, they're really trying to expand, right, their, their West Coast coverage. So they treat LA with a certain amount of respect. When they go to Philadelphia, they say things like, wow, I didn't know there were, I didn't know there were restaurants in Philadelphia that serve sushi. This is kind of <laughs> They do. They really do. They really do treat Philadelphia like it was some some weird fifth world backwater, you know. 
Right. And it's not, and it's not politics. Usually, the, I don't know, like I, uh, a lot of the times it's about food, right? Because Philly's kind of become a big food city. And so, but they write about it in the same, this same weird way, you know? Yeah, 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 visiting like they're visiting very, Timbuktu or something. Annoying. I say this someone that loves New York. I lived in Brooklyn for a few years, and it's my favorite place. If I could afford to live in Manhattan, do what I do, that's what I, I would be living there. So it is cool; it's its own cool place. But uh, it just gives them some huge blind spot about writing about other parts of the country, right? And, and I mean, you know, the New York Times is has been located in New York you know, for 130 years or something or more than that. I think it was, it was around during the civil war. So 150 years or more. And, you know, the fact that it sort of became the de facto national, like it was called the, the paper of record 30 years ago and yeah. longer than that. But the fact that it's now the de facto national chronicle, like is it's can't help but be distorted by the fact that it's, it is based in, you know, it is based in New York city and, um, you know, when I, I grew up in a Northern New Jersey suburb, so we got the New York times, you know, <laughs> delivered to us the paper. And so I grew up with it, but if you, you know, grew up in, um, you know, uh, Houston or something, there'd be no reason for you to follow the New York times. Um, and now that I'm sure they have like a, a Houston bureau now, but it, yeah, it's just like the, the decimation of, of local news and the consolidation has sort of has put them in a difficult spot because they're not you know they're not like the ap um they're 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 something different so but i i think there is another issue too which isn't just i mean it it does come from living in new york but it's it's not geographic per se which is that there i feel like when you read it and this is actually different to me than 25 years ago there's like an assumption that everybody reading it is very wealthy you know there's a constant constant um, references to brands and restaurants and things that are very upscale, you know, and, uh, you know, and then that awful thing, and I know why they do it. They have to get money for it. That awful real estate thing, what $3 million buys you in Louisville, Kentucky. I mean, I know why they right. do that. I know they do that because they make a lot of their money off real estate ads. So those are ways to make people look at real estate ads and they got to make a buck. And it's not an easy business to make a buck in anymore, but it, the overall, it does overall create the the image to the reader of a bunch of very wealthy, privileged people, kind of wanking about what what you know people talk about white people problems. This is way beyond that. This is like yeah, I think they're center problems. It seems their main you know prejudice is exactly the right word. The, the like the tribe that they really represent is the wealthy, and yeah, the yeah. The, the real estate and maybe the style and the and the food sections show that. And yeah, those those columns where they um i think it's called the hunt that they run every weekend and it's talking about someone looking for a new to a new apartment in, uh, in uh yeah. somewhere in new york city usually and it's just like you know it'll be like this a 27 year old who worked at goldman sachs and his girlfriend who is you know a publicist um for we work and right, you know right. their budget That's is nine hundred thousand right dollars, and it's just like this. Can, is I, so... can I use this pitch? I like the being a publicist for WeWork. <laughs> sure, go. Yeah, that's uh, you don't even need to credit me for that one. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just like this is so far outside um, the uh, even like the average within the New York City region. It, it's it's just like yeah, they it's it's for it's essentially for rich people, and I assume that is their audience. Like, don't you think they're smart enough to no. know who their no, audience I don't, is? Actually, I don't think that's their audience. Okay. I, I think, though, that it may be tied in with advertising money in the sense that, 
you know, I, I'm part of their audience and I'm not very wealthy, uh, but I might not be with the, you know, they, fr- from the standpoint of advertising, I might be essentially worthless, right? Because uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy a $6 million house in Long Island. So there's, they're not going to get any nice looking stuff from there. Right. You know, from their, yeah, from the, the ads, they, I don't look at the physical paper anymore, but the ads they serve online are often for luxury products yeah. and know. i think that might be what pays so that so there's a side of it that there's a side of it that really bothers me right um there's a side of it that bothers me less because i do realize that's maybe you know it's unfortunate that that online ads are not lucrative the way print ads were and so uh maybe the only way to make money with the online ads is 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 super high-end stuff and to get the you know to make those ads make sense in the context of the article, maybe the article has to be about, I'm not, I'm not saying I know all this for a fact, but I'm willing to believe that maybe part of it is, is because that's how, that's how they make their money. I don't think that's all of it. So yeah. And, and, and they're, you know, they're, they're making more and more money from subscription revenue versus right. advertising revenue because advertising online is sort of a race to the bottom. Uh, yeah. Whereas a subscription, that's sort of solid money. They'll keep on coming in. If you keep that person, happy and subscribing year after year. Um, so, but that presents a different set of problems with like audience capture and yeah. Um, yeah and if you look at, you know, papers, uh, this is obvious from 50 years ago, there'd be just, it's just like filled with ads for, you know, getting your watch fixed or, you know, um, uh, yard sales and um, uh, death announcements and, and yeah. that, that sort of thing. So that was a way because they had this local monopoly. Advertising doesn't exist anymore. So everyone knows that story. Um Okay, I, I want to ask you, we're, we're maybe approaching the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you about two of your, uh, I don't know, bait noirs of, of the column or of the of the feed. And that, so that would be Greenwald and Saliza mentioned previously. Um, so, yeah, so Saliza has been the, the punching bag for, for, for years, at least a decade or more. Greenwald is a more, uh, he's taken some interesting turns in the past couple of years. But um, what do you, uh, how do you view those two? I think that they're both nihilists and that's, and that's ultimately what I dislike the most. And that's part of what I try to parody in general and in, in making fun of your attempts. I, you know, I'm not always trying to just make fun of conservatives or centrists or something. There's this nihilism like, Hey, a million people are dead. But what's the upside for Republic? There's that kind of, <laughs> right. And I think that Salitza and Greenwald in di- very different ways are like the, the epitome of a certain kind of nihilism, right? Salitza is the very worst on always taking a horse race angle, right? Um, also not really funny or clever. Like I make fun of Maureen Dowd too, but I will be honest with you. I think her pieces are kind of funny sometimes. I like them in some ways. They're yeah. awful. And they're, but Salitza, it's just this pure, really, really stupid, take uh, on horse, uh, this really, really stupid horse race take, you know, it's completely amoral, right? And also very stupid. I guess that's really what I should say is they're the epitome of the combination of nihilism and stupidity, right? Uh, and so that's, that's why I make fun of them so much. Uh, I actually met Crystal at very once. He was actually very nice. Uh, I'm curious, charming in person. That's yeah, how he has I've, all, I've, all these sources. I've, I've, I've had multiple email exchanges with Glenn Greenwald and, He's he's kind of a monster, right? I mean, I think there's really not. I don't think there's really. Yeah, he see he has. Um, I've actually I, one of the few <laughs> my few claims to fame is that I was like anti Greenwald before it was cool, and he he blocked. I was me. very I was very slow to adopt. I mean, yeah. I, I this this is this is maybe part. My obsession may partly be fueled by a feeling of of being duped. 
Yeah, he had a lot of um, fans um, on the, you know, from from his early days and people who really appreciated his, you know, Snowden WikiLeaks reporting. I, 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 I he blocked me on, uh, on Twitter um, a couple of years ago. And so I, my joke is that it's sort of like uh, Plato's cave when I'm trying to figure out what you know, what, what he did by like reading the emanations and the shadows on the wall from everyone being mad at his latest thing. But yeah, I, so he is, um, I mean, I don't think he's dumb. I think he, yeah, he, um, but he does seem more of a, I don't know. He, he, maybe, maybe it is not a nihilist. He, he's definitely like put his, um, like picked aside and decided that it makes sense for him to, you know, play, pretend to be, a like civil libertarian who goes on Tucker Carlson and has an honest conversation with Tucker Carlson instead of someone who Tucker Carlson is using, you know, yeah. for, his, for his own well, ends. What I guess I say dumbest is I think his arguments are very dumb. Like when uh, people will be joking about something, Glenn Greenwald said, he also blocked me. And so I have to then go to my burner account to see what he actually said. And I, people are joking. And I'm like, that's so dumb. That's he didn't really say that. And then I'm like, oh my God, he really, he really said that, you know, he's really saying that, you know, that Hunter Biden's paintings are as bad as all the things or worse actually than anything that the Trump children ever did. And I feel like that's just stupid. I mean, it doesn't, not even right or left there. It's just like, it's just dumb. There's really no, a lot of his arguments, there's not a way to, they're just stupid. You know, they don't, they don't make any, I never read them. So like, I kind of make a point of reading people that I disagree with sometimes who I say something really stupid. I'll go look at the rest of their Twitter account or other articles. I'd say two out of three times I realize, you know what, actually they, I don't really agree with them, but they do make some good points about certain things that might even change my mind here and there in their work. I look at Greenwald and no, it's like, it's 100% garbage. You know, well, it, you know my, so <laughs> the, uh, this is like, I'm like revealing like the deep trauma that caused, um, Greenwald to block me was that I said in a um, thread in which he was not LinkedIn. So he's name searching. Uh, he's not a real journalist. And he, I mean, he's a lawyer and that's his, that's how he came up. A, a lawyer turned blogger who had this giant story land in his lap. So he makes a lawyer's arguments where it's like, and that used to be, you know, his blog post used to have like 17 updates where it's like, here's the latest little iteration of it. And so he's making, he's he, he like, as I understand him, um, he makes the arguments that as you would to a jury. And so they don't always need to be like, they don't need to be like internally consi- consistent. It's like, you just need to convince them enough right. that you're, you'll get the not guilty verdict or whatever. I mean, he was. Uh, yeah. He's, he's a lawyer. He's very similar to Jonathan Turley in a lot of ways with his arguments. Yeah. They're not internally consistent at all. Yeah. He's just, he's trying to win the court case kind of thing. Not like, not sort of actually convince someone, but yeah. And his, um, yeah, but I, 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 I'm glad that uh, you know the uh, conventional uh, wisdom, at least within certain sectors of online, has caught up with me with my, with my thinking that yeah, this guy sucks and um, is a uh, baleful presence on the on the uh, yeah. On the There's discourse. also the thing with him that gets me maybe more than Salitza, and this I I do think that so I'm not sure that he does this with China, but some sort of Glenn Greenwald esque people then defend the stuff about the China's doing to the Uyghurs or things like that. And actually Glenn Greenwald will defend Putin sometimes in Assad. And like just the sheer nihilism of that just kind of blows my mind. And it, and it, and it fuels a lot of my tweets, right? Cause I feel like uh, sometimes the tweets that I write that people like the best are Glenn Greenwald saying some ridiculously 
nihilistic and stupid thing. And uh, I, I, yeah, I just am in some ways just blown away by by how stupid and and nihilistic and he. Well, he, the other part of him is that he's he's like an extreme moralist, right? Right. And and uh, you know what? And very Manichaean in his pronouncements. And so whatever he's talking about, he always you know hypes it up and is so hyperbolic. And this is you know the greatest threat to you know modern modern society ever and so yeah he 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 has this both um it's yeah i don't know he he infuses his like nihilism with like very strong moral language and, and that right. yeah yeah which is common i'm afraid for nihilists the uh the so uh yeah so it just kind of blows my mind i mean when i read you know i feel like when i go to when if i'm really feeling a little bit creatively blocked i can always go look at some glenn greenwald or chris Solitza tweets and really, and really get some good material. Okay, so they're, so they're your muses in addition to being they're your, my muses. I would noirs. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because I get disappointed, right? Like I used to initially. I like I said when I started off, I really probably my big bet noir at the time was David Brooks, and now I go and you know, I mean, granted, sometimes he's taking kickbacks to talk about something at Aspen or something. That's right. Half the time I go and he's just saying some reasonable thing in favor of reparations or favor of joe biden's voting bill and it doesn't kind of doesn't really get me going you know yeah i mean brooks is certainly an interesting figure and i i did read him consistently for a long time and then sort of fell off but he i mean he sort of like he's like a communitarian like he actually does believe things like that's sort of right a dividing line in in these in the punditocracy is between people who actually do have beliefs and people who don't um and, and and brooks clearly does and 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 cares and like sees his role as trying to like knit the uh torn american fabric back together maybe his solutions are not the the right ones but he, he seems to i don't know be coming from a good place right currently um yeah. do you, no, well, i definitely view things now in terms of people who have beliefs versus people who have no beliefs and uh i think it's a real distinction i don't think i used to understand what a big distinction that was i think that this is something that trump really illuminated oh for, for sure because trump has no belief beyond his own greatness and that he's he's the best and knows everything etc and the the fact that so many people went along with him like through all that it was just a cult of personality like it really revealed certain you know it's certain things about um you know what you know people a lot plenty of people people don't actually care about policy policy they just care about like a shared enemy or being on on one side and and, yeah Aligning against the other one. Uh, we're, so maybe this, we're about at the end of our time. Do you see, but one last question, do you see any difference since Biden has come in? Is it, are we reverting to sort of the Obama era um, media sphere? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. Which is, which makes me feel much more at home because that's what I've, that's what it's been like most of my life. Right. So, yeah. So I think it's reverted now to mostly concern trolling Biden, you know, yeah, uh, I, think it, I think it used to be mostly about both siding, uh, whatever insane thing Trump was doing and trying to sum up, come up with some justification for it or why his critics were just as bad. That, that to me was the anti-anti-Trumpism for me was the dominant dominant uh, theme of, of Trump era political reporting. And now I think it's mostly back to concern trolling Democrats, which is what they feel most comfortable doing. <laughs> and it's what I, I spent most of my life reading. So I, I feel much more back at home now. Okay, so it is sort of like um, you know, uh, not nature is healing, but like like 
the the crisis is over and we're back to yeah we're back to we're back to talking about what Larry Summers thinks about inflation and the yeah I mean I one thing I've been those, you know, those kinds of things you know? the, the the political press wants us to believe that the fate of the infrastructure bill is like this huge important thing and yeah. from my perspective it's really like it could pass or not like the important things are defeating the virus yeah, and yeah. and having normal life return and once that happens people are not going to care as much about politics and the trump era was this aberration where it felt like you you needed to be plugged in all the time because a crazy thing could happen at any moment but half the time those crazy things didn't actually mean anything but you forgot about it 72 hours later because it'd be another right. crazy thing and so just returning to a level of normalcy politics is receding from yeah. our lives and there's not this sociopath you know who's yeah. gonna, trying to get our attention all the time this is all like good and whether I, from my perspective, like it would be better if the infrastructure bill passes, but like if it doesn't, you know, this is like life, life, life continues. And yeah. yeah, that's how that's how I see it. I, that's how I see it for New York for New York Times reader world. Right? I think unfortunately, uh, there's a segment of the Trump supporters who have, who have been truly radicalized and are thinking about QAnon twenty four seven and stuff. So I don't think it's necessarily receded for the really hardcore Trump supporters. But I think it has receded for your average New York Times reader. Yes, that that makes sense. And it, it's I have no idea. You know, you would you would think after January sixth that, that the you know spell would have broken for the QAnon type people, but it clearly didn't. It did. And yeah, it's sort of like that when prophecy fails idea that you know the uh, the second coming is always like just in the distance. We can barely glimpse it. We have to keep working for it. Okay. Um, why don't why don't we end things there? So the so the account, once again, the link will be below. Doug J Balloon, all one word, uh, and you can follow New York Times Pitchbot. It's ninety eight percent your jokes and your retweeting bad headlines and other such things. Occasionally, you do break character and um, for your own statements. But I encourage people to to follow the account and um, and get your your perspective on what's uh, what's right or wrong about the media. Is there anything anything else you want to? plug or anything like that no no thanks a lot for having me okay well thank you for for coming on and uh thanks to our viewers and listeners and uh we'll see you again next time